Amen. Today is a celebration. We come together as the body of Christ to celebrate our risen King. And just so glad you're all here this morning. We'd like to welcome you to Gateway Baptist Church as we celebrate and uh, just to reflect on the goodness of God. And those watching us online, bless you. We're so glad you're joining us as well in this time of worship and praise to our risen Savior. So I just want to ask you just to please stand. We're going to prepare our hearts before the Lord on this day of celebration, on this glorious Resurrection Sunday. As we prepare our hearts and just going to read and reflect on this beautiful event of why we're here and what we're celebrating this morning from John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples and the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, and, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. And she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to him, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing day. We thank you for your plan of redemption. We thank you, God, for the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that without your resurrection power, there'd be no reason to be in this room. We praise you for your resurrection, for your ascension, that you are ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of the Father. And we praise you, Jesus. You are worthy of our praise. And we thank you that we celebrate our resurrected king this morning, that you receive all honor, all glory, all power and authority are yours because you have conquered death, hell, and the grave. And because of that, we can live victorious in you as sin is conquered in our lives that we place our faith and trust in you. And we celebrate that today, your resurrection power, knowing that everything that takes place, everything we've experienced is in Christ alone. And the church said... Amen. Let's worship. Christ alone. 
to start uh, this prayer today with two pieces of verses from Ephesians chapter 2. But God, and later in chapter 2, but, but now. We, we just lift your name high and it, because of who you are and because of what you've done and because of how things are different now. We sing about the cross and the sacrifice you made. And, and today, on this morning that we celebrate here, everything is different. Everything is made new. We celebrate that. We thank you for that. We praise you forever as the King of Kings, as the song, as the song expressed. We lift your name high. We are beyond with words to exalt you for the love that you've shown and the grace this day, and we thank you for what you've done on our behalf. We celebrate this resurrection and are full of thanksgiving, and we reflect on the difference this sacrifice and resurrection have made, and we have overwhelming thanks. Because you were raised from the dead, we don't stand far off, strangers and outcasts, but we can draw near and touch your kingly scepter. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we don't need to hide our guilty eyes, but we can gaze on our Father God and friend. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we don't hide our lips in trembling shame, but we open our mouths in petition and praise. Because you were raised from the dead, we do not experience wrath and consuming fire, but we can experience love and rest for our souls. Because you were raised from the dead, we, we do not have a gaping hell below us and eternal anguish, but the gates of hell are barred by your precious blood. Because, the gates of, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we do not fate darkness and its horrors, but an eternity of glory is our boundless horizon. We praise you. We praise you as King of Kings. We thank you for the wave upon wave of grace you have shown toward us, the immeasurable grace that reaches us, that deals with our sin and washes us clean, renews our hearts, strengthens our will, draws out our affection, kindles a flame in our soul, and teaches us your immeasurable love. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for your love for us. We pray that the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart, and the the actions we engage in will bring glory to your name this day and these days on into the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Gateway family, and happy Easter to you. What a glorious celebration is, and what a just great day we have to celebrate the Lord together. So grateful each of you are here this morning. Do you find Acts chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word? Acts chapter 2. Now for our visitors this morning who are new to Gateway Day, I want to welcome you this morning. Over the past 10 months, we as a church have been studying very, very slowly through the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. Yes, we go very slowly, a verse or two a week, and we do so because we believe the Bible is God's very words to us. It's God's very breath. What we have in our hands in the scriptures is God's inspired, breathed out words that are completely true. As such, what we have in the scriptures is sufficient for everything we need to know for life and for godliness. God's word is rich, full of so much truth for us. So we go very slowly through books of the Bible here to explore the depths of God's revealed will 
for us. Now, for all of us, we're going to pause that study of 1 Peter this morning, but we're not going to pause Peter's teaching. As we go to Acts chapter 2 this morning, we're looking at Peter's very first sermon he ever preached, his most famous sermon, giving it a time called Pentecost. And so we're still looking at Peter's teaching, but looking at it in Acts chapter 2 this morning. As we look at Acts chapter 2, I want you to consider this question this morning to ask yourself on this Easter Sunday morning. And our question for today is, how do I respond to the unstoppable power of God? How do you respond to the unstoppable power of God? There's a big word we use a lot. If you've been around Gateway, you know it is the word omnipotent, omni-all-potent power. And it's just a word we use to describe God, to say that God is all-powerful. That means there's nothing that God desires to do that He is not able to do. That God is always able to accomplish all His will all the time because He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. As we look at Acts chapter 2 this morning, we're going to see the greatness of God's power on full display for us today. Friends, when we're looking at the power of God in Acts 2, this is just not a nice theological truth or a nice philosophical thought for an Easter Sunday morning for a holiday day. This is a text that calls us to examine ourselves. This is a text that calls us to respond to the truth of God's Word, just as it did for Peter's original hearers 2,000 years ago. So as we work through this text this morning, I want you to keep this question in mind. How am I responding to the power of God? As you see the power of God in this text and you're reminded of truths you know, how do you respond to the unstoppable power of God? Now, Acts 2 is a long sermon. Don't worry, we're not doing the whole of Acts 2 this morning. We're looking at just a few verses from it. We'll start this morning in verses 22 to 24. This is really a core truth of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Then we're going to jump ahead to verses 37 to 39 to look at the response of the people and Peter's instructions to them. So as we look at 22 to 24 and 37 to 39 this morning, be looking for where do we see the power of God displayed here. But again, be looking in your own heart. How do I respond to God's unstoppable power. So we'll start this morning in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God, His very revealed will for us, His truth, His unchanging words. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. We'll also have the words on the screen for you. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, And wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now go ahead to verse 37. Acts 2, 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truths that we have just proclaimed in song We are thankful for Christ and his willing sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We're thankful for his resurrection that overcame death and we know by which our sins are forgiven. And we thank you that we get to celebrate those glorious truths this morning. And Lord, for many of us, we're familiar with these truths. We think about them all the time. Lord, I pray that you would just remove the familiarity from us today, that we would be in awe and wonder and just captivated by your grace and your power, that we would see your greatness and your glory for who you are afresh this morning. 
And God, if there's those here who do not know you, who've never experienced your power, your grace coming to them, I pray today you'll be stirring their hearts, that your Holy Spirit be working on their hearts to see you for who you really are. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as we look at this text, we're going to start with that first section, Acts 2, 22 to 24. And as we look here, we see the power of God on full display. In fact, there's three main verbs in these verses here. And these three main verbs show us God's power at work. The focus of this verse is not what we get. The focus of these verses is what God has done. So we see God for who He is. So let's look at these three truths about God's power, where we see God's power. Number one here, we see how the miracles of Jesus... Show us God's unstoppable power. The miracles of Jesus show us God's unstoppable power. Look back at verse 22 and notice how it begins. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Now let's just stop right there. When he says Jesus of Nazareth, this was just a common way to refer to Jesus at the time. It's just a designation based on the town where he grew up. But he says that this is Jesus, a man. Peter's simply reminding us of what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus took on human flesh, that God took on human flesh, what we call the incarnation, that God became man. Now, one of the key truths for us to realize in this is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It wasn't like he was half God and half man at this point. He was 100% God and 100% man. He was the God-man. So how do we know that this man walking around named Jesus from Nazareth who claimed to be God, how do we know he actually really is God? And that is what follows here in verse 22. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. This word attested to you means to verify or to prove that Jesus was attested. He was proved to you. He was verified to you to be God. And how and who attested him? It says he was attested by God, by God the Father. The God the Father is verifying that God the Son really is fully God, that he is the promised deliverer, the promised Messiah that people had been waiting for for thousands of years, that the Old Testament had been pointing to that he is in fact God. Now, how does God the Father verify for us, attest to the fact that Jesus is God? Verse 22 tells us, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, notice this, with mighty works. Or some of your translations might say with miracles. When this was written in the Greek language, the Greek word here was literally the word dunamis. It's the word we get dynamite from. It's a word that means power or strength. That The Father attested that Jesus, in fact, is God. He is God the Son by his dunamis, his dynamite, his power, his strength, the miraculous things that he did. In other words, Jesus did things that no human being could do. And God the Father had him do these things so that we would know that Jesus is God the Son. So when Jesus walks on the water... When Jesus turns water into wine, when Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish, when Jesus raises the dead, when he makes blind people see, when he makes lepers to walk, when he casts demons out, and we can go on and on and on. These are his mighty works, his power, him doing things that only God himself could do. Now, I want to encourage you, if you've never read the Gospels, the first four books in the New Testament that point out Jesus' mighty works, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or friends, if you have been a long time since you read one of the Gospels, I want to encourage you this week to open up your Bible or get a Bible and read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and see for yourself once again the mighty works of Jesus. But don't miss something here about these miracles, these mighty works that he did. Look back in verse 22 towards the end of it here. He says, he was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, notice this, in your midst as you yourselves know. Now friends, it's one thing to claim to do a miracle. It's an entirely another thing to do miracle after miracle after miracle in the presence of believers and skeptics alike. 
when all this happened, when all these mighty works of Jesus were done, there were so many who despised Jesus. There were so many who hated him. Hence, he was crucified and killed. What we've been singing about this morning, what we celebrate on Friday. But none of them could question his miracles. They happened. They were historical facts. They were true things that actually happened. And the more miracles he did, the more people just got angry because they realized what he was doing and who he was claiming to be. These miracles, these mighty works were done in the presence of eyewitnesses in a lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And they were written down for us in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. There were so many who would love to have disproved that Jesus really did these things, but they could not because what we have recorded for us here is what actually happened in history. They attest to us that Jesus is God. They show us God's unstoppable power. No force of nature, no human limitation, not even sickness and death could stop God's power from doing what God had ordained it to do. But notice something here in verse 22 here. There's two other words that are used to describe Jesus' miracles here. Now why is Peter repeating himself? Look at what he says. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Now, wonders and signs are further descriptions of these miracles, these mighty works. Now, why is Peter repeating himself and describing them this way? And quite simply, friends, because these are words that show how we respond to what Jesus has done. This word wonders means something that's happened that creates within us excitement or amazement. When something is wonderful, it's not just, oh, that's nice, it happened. It creates within us excitement or amazement within our hearts. And a sign is something that points beyond itself to a deeper reality. When you see a sign, it points to a deeper reality. Now, you may have heard me say this before, but when I think of wonders and signs, the very frail human analogy to me comes to the thought of going to Disney World as a kid. Or if you've ever been to Disney or take your kids to Disney, when you get to Disney, there's this huge archway with Mickey and Minnie on either side of it and the big arch over it says Walt Disney World. Now, when we've taken our kids before to Disney and they see that sign, that's like, yeah, there's a sign. There's a sense of wonder and amazement that begins to grow, Right? Because you're there. something stirring in your heart when you see that sign. But no one gets that sign and goes, wow, that's so cool. Okay, let's go back home to Montgomery now. The sign points you to what is beyond it. The sign is not there for the sake of being the sign. The sign is to point you to what is still to come. That and so much more is why Jesus did these miracles. They are to be wonders to when you see them that your heart affections are to be stirred going, oh my goodness, he is God. He is amazing. And it's to point us to the deeper truths of who he claimed to be, that he himself is God in human flesh who came to show us God and to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. These are miracles of Jesus. They're wonders and they're signs to point us to who God is. And God did them to attest to us, to verify for us that Jesus is in fact God. Now friends, if you have a copy of a Bible, if you have ever had anyone explain to you anything about Jesus, and if you are here this morning, which obviously you're all here this morning, then God is attesting to you that Jesus is real and that Jesus is God. And so before we move on, I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time you read, considered, thought about the mighty works of Jesus? When was the last time you paused in your business and opened the scripture and just reflected on the life of Christ and thought about all these miraculous things he did? And when you did, friends, what happened in your soul? Was there wonder? Was there amazement? Was there a deepening of faith that this is in fact God and he is my Savior? Peter's showing us God's unstoppable power and the miracles of Jesus that show us that he is in fact God. But there's a second main verb in these verses, and it shows us a second way that God's power is on display here, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus shows us God's power. The crucifixion, the death of Jesus shows us God's power. This is what we celebrated on Friday. Look at verse 23 of Acts 2. 
That's where Peter goes next. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, when we look at this verse, so we think about the crucifixion of Christ, we normally start and we normally think about the last half of this verse where he says that you, here, the Jewish people, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The lawless men here is referring to the Roman soldiers at the time, the Roman government that gave in to the demands and crucified Christ. Friends, that's not the major emphasis of this verse. This is not where Peter starts. Peter does not say, hey, your people killed Jesus, so God up in heaven was scratching his head and figured out a way to redeem all this and make something good come out of it. See, haha, you tried something bad, God found a way to, to fix what you did. That's not where he starts here. His emphasis, his focus is the beginning of this verse, that it is God's plan for Jesus to die. Notice how he begins verse 23. This Jesus delivered up, that's referring to his crucifixion, his death on the cross. He was delivered up according to, now in the Greek here, according to is a purpose clause. It shows us the reason something has happened. And he doesn't say Jesus was crucified, he was delivered up according to, because of, you crucified him. No, the reason why Jesus was delivered up, it was according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Now, when you see foreknowledge in Scripture, it doesn't just mean God knows what will happen. Foreknowledge in Scripture means God has developed a plan and is accomplishing it. This is God's will that will certainly happen because he is all-powerful. Jesus died on the cross not because men nailed him to it. He died on the cross because it was God's definite plan from before time began. I love how Jesus himself told us this in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. As Jesus is speaking there, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Verse 18, he says, No one takes it from me. So so who takes Jesus' life from how many people? How many no one takes it from That means the Jews did not, the Romans did not. No one takes it from me. He says, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus' death was not plan B. It was God not just trying to fix something that mankind messed up here. It was plan A from before time began. It was God's plan to show in one moment his totality of his attributes, how he is wrathful against sin and merciful, how he is both holy and full of grace, how he's just and full of love. There in the cross we see God's view of sin, but we see God's great love for sinners that he will redeem just like us. And so when Jesus was crucified, it happened only when God decided it was time for it to happen. I think through John's gospel, we say it many years ago, that there were so many times that people tried to arrest and kill Jesus before it actually happened, and they couldn't. Why? Because God's in control of these things, not the people. John chapter 7, verse 30. In John 7, 30, we're told, so they were seeking to arrest him, Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. People were trying to arrest him, ready to kill him, and it wasn't God's time, so it hadn't happened yet. John chapter 8, verse 20 tells us the same thing. These words he spoke in the treasuries, he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him, though they wanted to. Why? Because this hour had not yet come. God's power was so unstoppable that no one could touch Jesus to arrest him until God had decided it was the right time. And when you see that time come in John chapter 17, verse 1, there's how Jesus describes it. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Friends, the death of Jesus, what we celebrate on Friday, does not show us the power of humanity. 
It does not show us the power of sin or the power of evil people. Rather, it's the exact opposite. The death, the crucifixion of Jesus shows us the unstoppable power of God. It was God's plan from before time and happened only when God had appointed it to happen. And as we think about people watching on on this and seeing God's power on display, even on the cross, one of them responded correctly. Matthew 27, verse 54. He saw the power of God and he got it. This centurion, this Roman soldier, and those who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place. And they were filled with, the more literal translations, they were filled with fear and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So friends, back to you. What about you on this Easter morning? When you think about the historical event of Jesus dying on the cross, does it lead you to a fearful awe of God's power? Does it lead you to believe that this was in fact Jesus who died for our sins, that he's the promised one? Does it lead you to the desire to worship him? Or do you find your heart cold towards these truths? So far, Peter's shown us the unstoppable power of God in Jesus' miracles He showed it to us in Jesus' death, but there's one more here. In verse 24, he's going to show us that Jesus' resurrection shows us the unstoppable power of God. Jesus' resurrection shows us the unstoppable power of God, what this Easter Sunday celebration has been all about. Look at verse 24. God raised him, Jesus, up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him. Him up. Now think back to verse 22 we saw earlier about how the Father is attesting to the fact that Jesus is God. He is God the Son. What we have here in the resurrection in verse 24 here is the greatest attestation, the greatest proving that Jesus was in fact God. Yes, he did all these miracles. He did all these incredible mighty works. But when he was crucified, it could not keep him in the grave. He rose back to life. It shows us that he is God and he is all-powerful. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. I love how Paul describes this. He says, Paul, he introduces a letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Gospel just means the good news, the message of Jesus, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, that's Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, verse 4, notice this. And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. He was declared in power to be the Son of God through His resurrection. That's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 as well, and being found in human form, He, Jesus, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And notice what happened. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. The Father is attesting to us through the resurrection that Jesus is in fact God the Son so that we will believe in Him. It shows us that Jesus is God. Now friends, realize there are many, many, many world religions out there today, but every other one of them, the leader is in a tomb somewhere. The leader's buried somewhere because that leader, that religion was defeated by death, but not Jesus. Not just death could not, did not stop him, death could not stop him. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why was it not possible? Because he is God. And the words he told to Martha when her brother died in John chapter eleven twenty-five, he doesn't just have power to do resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection and the life that he himself is God. He showed that to us and he shows that to us again in his resurrection. So Peter's reminding us of the unstoppable power of God, the omnipotence of God and the miracles of Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Friends, that's not just a nice thought, a philosophical thought for us to talk about in coffee shops together. 
That's a truth that every single one of us has to leave today responding to in some way. That's why I ask you at the beginning, how do you respond to the unstoppable power of God? Notice how Peter even calls for a response before he even begins saying these truths. Go back to verse 22 here. And notice how he begins. says, men of Israel, hear these words. Now in Scripture, when Jesus uses the word hear, when Peter uses it here as well, this word hear means pay attention. You obviously are hearing the sounds coming to your ear. This is a call to pay attention. It means stop, focus your minds, listen well, because what follows, what we've just been looking at, is a matter of life and death for us. And as we listen, as we pay attention, as we consider these truths, these truths that follow here about the power of God seen in Jesus' life and in his death and his resurrection, it forces the question for us, how am I responding to this truth? And friends, the reality is there's only two responses to this truth. We see it in Acts and we've seen it ever since. There's only two possibilities. Every one of us will walk out today responding in one of these two ways. The first response is to believe this truth so that it changes us. To look at the miracles of Jesus, to look at his crucifixion, to look at his resurrection, and to believe in such a way that it changes us. Now, I want to give some clarification here, especially if you're visiting with us. Those who have been around Gateway have heard this before. But to belief is not, I pray a prayer because I don't want to go to hell, and then I live my life the way that I want to. That is not belief. That's pushed by a lot of American Christianity. Belief in Jesus is not, I want to get out of hell, so I'm going to pray this prayer, and then I'm going to do what I want to do. That's not what belief looks like. What does true belief look like? Peter shows us four things that are involved in true belief here in verses 37 to 39, that second part of this text that we read earlier. Four things to show true belief, and all four of them are essential. So again, as you read this, be thinking, is this true in my life? Is this something that I have experienced and I have done? Can I say with confidence all four of these things are part of my life because I believe in God and I've seen his power and I've responded in this way? Number one, the first part of belief is brokenness over our sin. Brokenness over our sin. Now sin, you've heard me say before, is anything that displeases God, is anything that violates God's will, as revealed in Scripture. It's doing the things God has said do not do, and it's not doing the things that God has said do. And we're all full of sin. And so belief, true belief, begins with a, with a brokenness over our sin. Look at how the people responded here to Peter's sermon. Verse 37 Now when they, that was the crowd listening, heard this, all these truths he's been saying about who Jesus is and God's great power, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's a Greek word that means they felt deep, deep anguish. And when they heard this truth, they weren't like, no, that's nice, okay, I don't want to go to hell, I'll pray this and I'm going to do what I want to do. No, this truth broke them deep in their heart, in the soul of who they were. They felt anguish, brokenness over their sin, particularly their sin of rejecting Jesus. And the reality is, friends, we all start off rejecting Jesus, just like this crowd. We may think we're okay because we're not sitting there shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But all of us begin basically shouting that because we're living our lives for ourselves. We're born sinners. And so faith begins, belief begins with having a brokenness over our sin and our rejection of God. But it doesn't stop there. There's a second thing Peter shows us. that true belief, not only is brokenness, it's also a word we call that says repentance. True belief involves repentance. Look here in verses 37 and 38. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? Repent is a big word that simply means to turn. To repent means we're turning from our sinful ways and we're turning to God. We're turning from living for ourselves to living for God. We're turning from not believing in God to believing in God. It's a turn from our old ways to God now. Now, what does it look like to turn to God? 
So we're just saying we feel sorrow over our sin and we confess our sins. We acknowledge our sins to God. We're agreeing with God that, God, your standard is right. I've offended you. I need your forgiveness. So repentance is us acknowledging God's standard, our violation of it, and seeking his forgiveness for our sins. So Peter's saying he's calling people to believe and showing us that belief involves brokenness over sin, involves repentance. Number three, it involves a public acknowledgement of our belief. It involves a public acknowledgement of our belief in Jesus and his power and who he is. Look back at verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, baptism, the reason why we do baptism here is a public confession. It's the way someone says, I am a follower of Christ. And we do it the way we do it, where we push someone under the water and bring them back up because it's a symbol of identifying with Jesus' death and his resurrection, saying, I believe Christ died for my sins. I believe he was raised in the newness of life. Friends, in the Bible, there's no such thing as a secret Christian. There's no such thing as someone who's like, hey, I'm going to follow Christ, but I'm not going to let anyone else know about it. In the Bible, we're called to be broken over our sins. We're called to repent, but we're called to make it public to others that I am a follower of Christ, and I am excited to be known as a Christian, a follower of Christ. So true belief in Jesus involves brokenness of sin, repentance, public acknowledgement of him. But number four, and lastly here, it involves a changed life. It involves transformation. The result of true belief is there is transformation. If there's no transformation, no change in our life, there was never to belief to begin with. No matter how many times we prayed a prayer, walked down an aisle up front, got baptized. If there's no change, no transformation, there was no belief because true belief changes us. And you're thinking, well, where is that here in this text? Well, it's still here in verse 38 here. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and this, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. Friends, everyone who believes in Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit when they believe. The Holy Spirit being the third person of the one true God. And He, the Holy Spirit, dwells within the life of everyone who is a true follower of Christ. Now, what does that have to do with transformation? Everything, because the Holy Spirit is the one who changes us. Look at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have within you the Holy Spirit, the third person of the one true God who is guiding you into all truth. He's pointing out truth and convicting you of sin and pushing you towards godliness and transformation. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14 for us. If you live according to the flesh, that's our all simple ways, you will die. But if by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit working in you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. God gives us the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to point us to Christ, to strengthen us to follow God, to change us, to grow us in Christ's likeness. So true belief in Jesus is brokenness over our sin. It's repentance, turning from our old ways to turning to God. It's a public acknowledgement, I'm a Christian. And it's transformation that results from the Holy Spirit being at work in our lives. I want to point out something as you think about what belief looks like. When someone believes like that, that's not because we're powerful, but because it's God's power at work in us. That type of belief does not come from anything we do. It comes from God giving us faith and changing us. Notice verse 39 here and how we end this section today. For the promise for you and for your children, what's the promise? The promise is that forgiveness. The promise is the Holy Spirit that will come to you. The promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Friends, the reason we believed, 
the reason why we have been broken over our sins, the reason why we have faith, the reason why we're seeking to live for the Lord is not because we're smart, wise, incredibly wonderful people who just got it all figured out. It's the opposite. We were lost in our sin, but God pursued us, and God called us, and God gave us this faith. And when we have the type of faith that Peter's showing us here, it's not a testimony to us. It's a testimony to the power of God. And you see that power at work when Peter said this first sermon. Thousands of people had God-given faith in responses. Look ahead to Acts 2, 41 to 43. So those who received his word and were, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, they had to have weeks and months of studying this, but they heard about the power of God. They heard who Jesus was, and God gave them faith, and 3,000 trusted Christ that day. And you see the change right away, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, that's within the church, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They heard about the power of God, and they responded in God-given faith. So back to our opening question, friends, on this Easter Sunday. How do you respond when you're confronted with the power of God and Jesus' claims that he is God? Now, there's a second response for those who choose not to follow Christ. And the only other response is to not believe. And to not believe is to reject God. There's no middle ground. Our culture wants to tell you there's this place where you can be like, oh, Jesus is a good moral teacher and just follow his moral teachings, but I'm not going to really follow his claims to be God. Friends, if a man walks around this earth claiming to be God and doing miracles, he was either a liar or he was crazy or he was actually who he said to be. There's no middle ground for us to say, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus' morality, but I'm not going to believe in him as God. We either believe him and it changes our life or we reject him and think he was crazy or a liar on this. Friends, many, though thousands believe, many did not at the time. If you look ahead to Acts chapter 4, you see though people had seen with their own eyes. They didn't read about it. These are people who saw the miracles. They saw dead people coming back to life. Who saw Jesus as a resurrected Christ. And what happened, Acts 4.1, they were speaking to the people. This is the disciples now. The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they were confronted with the power of God. They had been alive here. They'd seen the miracles, and they were annoyed by it all. And so they arrested the disciples, verse 3, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And today, just like then, there's people who are confronted with the power of God, and Jesus claims to be God, and their hearts are hard, and they become annoyed by who he claims to be. And Jesus warned us this would happen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's a sobering text in, in Matthew's gospel. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. And then in verse 14, he says, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Because it is narrow, it is hard when you're to be broken over your sin and to acknowledge that I am broken and I need God. It is hard for people to realize that I can do nothing on my own to get to God. There's nothing I can do to earn God's favor, but to humble ourselves and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is a narrow, a hard way. And then to go, but God, I don't want to live for myself. I want you to change me. I want to live according to your revealed will. That is a narrow, that is a hard way. And few then and few today still find it. So on this Easter Sunday morning, as we think about Peter's sermon, and you're confronted once again, and I'm confronted once again with the power of God, the question for me and the question for you is this morning, how do you respond to the unstoppable power of God? How will I respond to the unstoppable power of God? Friends, if you would say, hey, Grady, I really don't know if I believe in this God. I'm not sure I even believe in this Jesus. I hope this week you'll take time and consider the claims of Christ. 
You'll get a copy of the Bible. If you don't have one, we have a resource center in the hall, and the whole bottom shelf is full of Bibles. Take one for free. I'd love for you to have one and just to read what Jesus, who Jesus claimed to be and what he did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. I hope you'll read it saying, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. My friends, for those who do believe, and you're like, yes, I know this Jesus, would you pray this week that God would focus your thoughts onto Christ? You would take time this week to keep considering his life and his miracles and his death and his resurrection, to consider your own faith and how God's power turned a sinner like you to belief. But to remember all these things Jesus did are to be wonders and signs to give you a sense of awe in his presence. And would you this week, this week after Easter, pray and ask God to increase your sense of awe and wonder and excitement. Think about whatever it is that most excites you the, the most in this, this life, whether it's a vacation or a sports team thing or something you get And go, God, I want to love you and be more excited about you than whatever that is. And ask God to give you a greater sense of his power this week and to turn your hearts to him this week in deep faith as you see his power at work. How do you respond to the unstoppable power of God? Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that you have attested to us who Jesus is. That you've shown us that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. That he is the second person of the one triune God and that he came to show us the Father. And so, Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, for the joy set before you, endured the cross. That you're willing to take all of my sin and the sins of all your people on your shoulders and with joy before you, you endured the worst agony that a person has ever experienced. You endured the agony of the cross and you endured the agony of your Father turning away for the first time ever in eternity and you felt the wrath of the Father against you. Thank you for taking our sins in your place. And I pray as we think on this Easter weekend that you would remind us of your great power, O Lord. That we think about your power that spoke this world into being. Your power that had a plan for all of history. Your power that did all these miracles. Your power that led you to the cross at the right time. Your power that led you to be raised from the dead. Your power that birthed the church and that has let the gospel go throughout the world. Your power that is taking the gospel now to all the nations and changing our lives and changing other people's lives and your power that will one day usher in the end of the age. Where we confess so often we lose sight of your power and our problems seem monumental, our problems seem overwhelming. We forget that we know the one who spoke the world into being. We forget that we are in a relationship with the one who can speak and heal the lepers and heal the lame, that you have all power. Lord, forgive us for being so short-sighted and forgetting your power so often. And I pray this week for those of us who know you, that we would be a people who would be in awe of your power, that you'd remind us often throughout the week that you are on your throne, that you are ruling and reigning. You are the omnipotent, sovereign, ruling king. And our faith would be strengthened this week, knowing that you are all-powerful and you are working all things for good according to your perfect purposes. Lord, if there are any who are here who do not know you, God, I pray you show your power on their behalf. Show yourself strong this week to them, that you would attest to them who you are, and you would bring them to a place of repentance. Whether it's a child, one of our families, whether it's an adult, Lord, whoever it is who does not yet believe, would you be drawing them to yourself, calling them to yourself this week? And we give you all the praise, because that is what it's all about. It's about your glory and you being known. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a closing song, and it's very appropriate, very profound lyrics to end our Easter time together. We're going to sing, I was once lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised me joy in life had led me to the grave. Let those words sink in and remind you the brokenness we feel over our sin. Because I'm going to say, I had no hope that you would own a rebel. That's us. We were rebels to your will. And God, if you'd not love me first, 
I would refuse you still. That's what we were just reading about in Acts 2.39, that God calls us to himself. Then he'd go into, we'll sing again. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me and all I know is grace. Friends, if you do not know Christ, I hope this song will give you a beautiful picture of what true belief looks like. And I pray God will stir your hearts to want to believe like this. But if you do know Christ, I pray this song will be your song of praise and thanksgiving to God, thanking him for drawing you to himself and giving his power work on your behalf to make you a child of God. Let's sing to the Lord together.
Father, that is what we know to say today is hallelujah, praise you, thank you. That you looked upon us when we were running our hellbound race, when we were not seeking you, not desiring you, and you turned our hearts to you and you rescued us from our sin and our hellbound race and you drew us to yourself. God, as your people, we just simply say thank you that it seems so inadequate. So we reflect on the cross and all that Christ did for us. We know what else to say, but thank you. And we ask today as we've just sung that you would use our lives however you choose. As we think about your power and your greatness, God, we would quit trying to hold on to control of our own lives and our own ways. And we surrender to you, Lord, just trusting you to lead us and to guide us and to point us in the way you would have us go. So this week, God, would you give us a hunger to open your word, to read your truth, to see your power on display in the pages of Scripture? Would you give us a hunger to pray and to talk to you? Would you give us a willingness this week to say, Lord, not my will but yours be done. So Lord, have your way in us. Grow us into the people you desire us to be for the glory of God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family, and happy Easter.